0: Well, it's kind of interesting standing up here because this is my last sermon for the next three months. I am going to be starting a sabbatical in October, and so my immediate plans are preaching right now, and then this afternoon I preach at Faith Baptist Church in Vancouver next Sunday, I am here next week working in the office, and next Sunday the church that I pastored in Edmonton is having their 50th anniversary. So they've asked me to come and speak at their 50th anniversary, so uh, we will be in Edmonton next week, and then after that I start my sabbatical. Uh, Just uh, an update on my sabbatical, because there's a few people that have had a couple of questions that they have had for it. First off, I am coming back after the sabbatical. I have had so many people come to me, are you leaving? Are you not coming back in that. So, I know this makes some people happy, some probably not so happy, but I am coming back after my sabbatical. Um, my plans that I, uh, unless God does something very differently and, and tells me something clearly very differently, my plans when I started at the church was that I said I would be here at least until all my kids graduated high school. So, I've got still a few more years to go. And that was, I'll be here at least that long. So anyway, that's what's happening. And it's not a stress leave either. I'm feeling pretty good. Um, When I started at the church at the very beginning, uh, in the contract, it said after six years of ministry, in my seventh year, I would be granted a three-month sabbatical. Um, I've been here seven years. And so this is technically my eighth year. But I delayed it a year because we wanted to make sure that we had our executive pastor in place. And now that Jerry is here... Um, I can take off and Jerry can become the lead pastor for three months. And so it's been great having Jerry as part of the staff as well. As you saw from the staff picture, we have a lot of fun. So uh, my family and Nancy and, and the kids will still be around here for the next three months too and involved in different things. So that's the update on that. So I have a great... Final sermon, obviously, uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about, Christ. Hopefully, Christ is is behind everything that I'm doing in all sermons, but this one is so explicitly Christ-centered, so it's kind of a great way to, 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 to sign off at least for three months. Well, my wife loves detective novels. Uh, She has made her way through all the works of Arthur Conan Doyle. That's the Sherlock Holmes series. Uh, She enjoys Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, G.K. Chesterton. She grew up with Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. And really, none of this should have surprised me when I married a woman with the name of Nancy Lois Holmes. I mean, everything in that name says detective. Uh, recently, Nancy has gotten me into Wilkie Collins. Has anybody here read Wilkie Collins stuff? Um, mwah. I love Wilkie Collins. It's, it's so good. I'm, I'm, I'm currently lost in this mysteriously tangled web of a book called The Law and the Lady, uh, another one of these mystery stories that I'm hoping this week to figure out how it all ends and how the story is solved. Well, the Bible is also full of mystery stories, particularly in the Old Testament, which is why many of us, when we get into the Old Testament, we can feel so lost. And sadly, this causes some of us to simply stop exploring. It would be kind of like me at this point. I'm about three quarters of the way through this Wilkie Collins book, and right now things aren't adding up. In every chapter, I 'm kind of led in a different direction, and I'm thinking it's going this way, I'm thinking this person did it, and then I read something else, and now I think this person did it. And it would be kind of like me stopping now and saying, "This doesn't make sense," and I quit. I don't want to read anymore. But if I do that, I stop myself and I rob myself of that "Aha moment that happens when you get to the end of the story and you find out then who did it. And then, what's quite interesting with mystery stories or or detective novels, if you go back through the detective novel after, you begin to figure out how all these little pieces along the way, some of which seemed completely random and had nothing to do with the story, or why was it even in there, all of a sudden, all those little details begin to make sense. We get the story, but we only get the story in light of the end. Now, we have a similar problem if uh, thinking the Old Testament is is too complicated and too difficult, we simply stick with just the New Testament. I'm just uh, going to keep reading that because that's kind of the end of the story. But the problem with that is, yes, now we've got Jesus, but really we have no idea how we got here. We have many questions that we answer, but without the backstory. Who is this Jesus? Why did he come? What did he do? How does he finish the story? And how do all the pieces in Jesus' story make sense in light of the larger story? You see, without knowing the whole story, we often can misread Jesus and misread even many of the things that he did. I'll give you one example. Um, Take the time when Jesus went into the temple and turned over all the tables and got all upset because he said, my house has to be a house of prayer and had that whole statement there and really what happened in the temple is one of the catalysts that led to his death. Now, without the backstory, like like jumping to the end of a Wilkie Collins story and only reading the end, and then trying to make up however we got to the end, without knowing the backstory, what do we do? Well, we interpret it this way. We say, obviously Jesus doesn't want us selling things in the church foyer. That's why he turned over tables in the temple. it's It's about bake sales or book sales in the church foyer. God's against that and he doesn't want that to happen. That's the kind of misreading of scripture that we do. We impose upon the scripture something that it is not intending to say at all because we don't know the story. When we do know the story, we understand that Jesus in this picture is coming to fulfill what the temple was merely an illustration for. The temple, the place where God dwelled, the place where all people could come from all nations, the place that never really fulfilled that objective because so often it got abused in different ways like in the instance that was happening in Jesus' day where the Gentiles were being crowded out of the temple so they weren't able to pray and Jesus is coming and in many ways what he's doing is he's abolishing the temple system and saying the temple was merely a foreshadow of me. Now that I've come, I have fulfilled the temple. That's why he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they realized he was talking about his body. Now isn't that much more profound than bake sales in the foyer? And it's because we know the story. We know how it all is put together. The Bible is like a grand detective story. And really... It's all leading up to the who done it in Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot of clues and a lot of things in it that seem mysterious for a time, but then they find their fulfillment in Christ. But if we just jump to Christ, then we don't understand how he is fulfilling things by his actions, by his sayings, and by what he's doing, and then we often impose cultural things onto Jesus which don't make sense. Of the story. Today, we're going to enter into one of those backstories to the great detective story in Jesus. We're going to go back to a mysterious Old Testament story, and then with the help of the New Testament, try to solve the crime. And this story, like the last number of Sundays, also involves an Old Testament king. Now, the back story to even this story is a, another king, a tyrant, by the name of Ketolamer, who attacked and subjected a number of cities to his reign in Palestine at the time. Two of those cities are the famed Sodom and Gomorrah, that were attacked by Ketolamer, he captured the people, and he took them away. Now. This happened about 2,000 years before Jesus, about 1,000 years before Israel or Jerusalem were on the scene. Now, when Ketolammer took over these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, there was a guy by the name of Lot who lived in one of them, and Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham who lived during that time, Abraham who would become the father of the Jewish people, his nephew Lot lived in one of these cities, and when Ketolamr came and took them away, Lot was part of the people that were kidnapped. When Abraham heard about this, Abraham was a fairly wealthy man, he took 318 of his men that were in his household and friends and family, and he set out to try to capture and destroy Ketolamr and rescue Lot and set the people free. And so that's exactly what he did, he hunted them down in the night, And when Ketelammer's soldiers were lying down, sleeping, Abraham took his 318 men, he split them in half, and he attacked them in the night from two sides. They were surprised because Ketelammer wasn't expecting this, and he got demolished. Abraham and his men won the war, and then they took the people like Lot and everybody else back home, rescued. But on his way home... From this victory, the king of Salem, which will, a thousand years later, become Jeru-Salem. But at this time, it's just Salem. It's going to be a thousand years until David gets on the scene and, and, and conquers this city and calls it Jeru-Salem. And it becomes David's city. Now Salem, the king of Salem, comes out and greets Abraham after this victory. And this is the story we have in the Old Testament. Genesis 14, 18 to 20. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of the Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abraham with this blessing blessed be abram the god of god by god most high creator of heaven and earth and blessed be god most high who has defeated your enemies for you then abram gave melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered end of story it's kind of an interesting story three verses that's all we get Abraham, Abram, same guy, defeats Ketalamer, rescues Lot, rescues all the people, brings them back, King of Salem, who's also a priest, comes out, greets them, gives them a blessing. Abraham gives him a tenth, and he seems to just disappear. There's no more mention of him in the book of Genesis. And so it seems just kind of like a trivial story. Who is this Melchizedek guy? He appears for a a mere three verses. And yet, he shows up one more time in one verse, still kind of cryptic in the Psalms. We get this verse, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. Well, that's weird. So there's this story about Melchizedek. It's only three verses long in the book of uh, Genesis. And then about a thousand years later, from the historical event, we get this psalmist writing this line. The Lord has taken an oath will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. Well, what's going on there? There must have been some extra biblical backstory that we don't know about. But then, when we come to the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews spends two entire chapters on this mysterious Melchizedek, who only has four Bible verses mentioned in the Old Testament of him. And so it's time to do some detective work and to look at what appears to be irrelevant. Detail and see how all of a sudden there's a significant connection to it with how the story finishes in the New Testament. Genesis 14 introduces us to the characters, it gives us the basic plot, the story I just told you. Psalm 110 comes along and tells you that there's more to this story than just first meet your eyes. And then Hebrews comes along and solves the crime. It is a 2,000 year detective story. That fortunately from where we stand in history, we get to engage in the whole detective story. It's an event that happened 4,000 years ago. It has a psalm written about it 3,000 years ago. And then the mystery is solved 2,000 years ago. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to look at what this chapter, I said he's mentioned in another chapter in Hebrews as well, but we're only going to look at one chapter in Hebrews, and see what Hebrews says about this strange character. Verse 1, this Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and was also a priest of the Most High God. He's kind of recapping the details. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of peace. And King of Salem means King of, or sorry, the name Melchizedek means King of Justice, and the King of Salem means King of Peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors. There's no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Consider then how this great Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now, the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel, who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham the one who had already received the promises of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who was blessed. The priests who collect tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say, That these Levites, the one who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek, when their ancestors, Abraham, paid a tithe to him. I'm getting tongue-tied. Paid a tithe to him. (coughs) For For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected a tithe from him. Now, I know what you're thinking at this point. You're telling me that this solves the crime? I'm more confused than I was before. And how does the New Testament writer get all of this out of the Old Testament? Well, it's important to understand how the New Testament often interpreted the Old Testament. In fact, the early church fathers often interpreted the Old Testament in a very similar New Testament fashion. Something that's kind of gone out of vogue in our current way of interpreting the Bible, in a very more rationalistic way. And it is a method of allegory and typology. So what we need to understand, and what we need to keep in mind, is that the writer of Hebrews here is not actually teaching us about Melchizedek. He's not really interested in giving you a history lesson about some strange king in the Old Testament by the name of Melchizedek. What the New Testament writer is doing is he wants to teach you about Christ. That's his primary objective, to teach you about who Christ is and what he said, what he did, what he means, and how he impacts the entire world. And yet, he is using, as Paul does in different places, the church fathers do as well, he is using pictures from the Old Testament to illustrate the greater reality of who Christ is. Showing us that there were fingerprints, there were patterns. Sometimes the terminology that Hebrews use is shadows in the Old Testament that now in light of the New Testament take on a greater meaning. So he's using Melchizedek as an allegory. Or he's using Melchizedek as a type. It's called typology for Christ. And therefore we have to realize that to speculate about Melchizedek is just an unnecessary rabbit trail. The writer of Hebrews is not saying that Melchizedek literally had no parents. He's not saying that Melchizedek literally had no beginning or end to his life. That would make Melchizedek almost like a demigod in the Old Testament times. He's not saying that. Nor is he saying that Melchizedek somehow is Jesus Christ. Who appeared as Melchizedek in the Old Testament. He's not making those connections. That would be too literal of a reading. And not what Hebrews is intending. He's simply using our lack of knowing about Melchizedek's background as an example or as an allegory of the truth about who Jesus Christ is. And the fact that Melchizedek was the king of Salem as a picture or as an example that Jesus is the one to become the true king of Jerusalem. But remember, even here, the New Testament, all of this stuff in Old Testament terms is shadow imagery. Jesus never became the literal king of the city Jerusalem in Palestine because that's not what the New Testament writers ever were even thinking. That too is a shadow. So what they're saying is that Melchizedek was in shadow form a king of Salem, which would become Jerusalem, but Jesus is going to come as the true king of the true Jerusalem, which is the new Jerusalem. That is symbolic, symbolic for the new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem stands for the new creation. Jesus is the true king of what Melchizedek stood as a symbol for. Just as Jerusalem is a symbol for the new creation of what Jesus is going to be king over. And he is going to reign for all over all people. Hebrews wants to teach us certain things about Jesus by using Old Testament events. It's kind of like in the last battle for those of you that are Narnia fans. In the last battle, uh, Diggory explains to Peter about coming back to Narnia. And this is what he says. He says, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been there and always will be there. He's using kind of Platonic thinking here. Uh, Plato often talked about the universals in particulars, and particulars. And the New Testament writers are, are, are sort of using this kind of thinking a little bit and saying that all these things in the Old Testament are merely copies or shadows of the real thing. That doesn't mean they weren't real events. Melchizedek was a real person. There was a real Salem. But what he's saying is that all of those things were merely pictures. They weren't the real thing. Melchizedek wasn't the real king of kings. Salem or Jerusalem wasn't the real new creation. Christ is. And so Hebrews is trying to help us now understand the fulfillment of these things just like C.S. Lewis was kind of doing. Narnia is simply a picture of something much grander. And so what does Hebrews draw from Melchizedek's short appearance in the Old Testament? He says this, he says, well, Melchizedek was the king of Salem. And Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and therefore it makes him... Greater than Abraham, because he says that the one that blesses is greater than the one that's being blessed. Hebrews 7, 7, without question, the person who has the power to bless is always greater than the person blessed. We also see that Abraham surrendered to Melchizedek by giving him a tenth of what he won in battle. Melchizedek's name, the writer of Hebrews says, means justice. The name of the city that Melchizedek ruled over means peace. We also have no record of Melchizedek's ancestors. Now, from this, Hebrews jumps to an application that might seem like a little bit of a jump. Because you could say that Ketolama, remember that king? We don't have any mention of his parents or ancestors either. But... Ketelammer doesn't fit the analogy that he's wanting to try to make. So he's saying that we don't have any record of Melchizedek's ancestors. So from this, the writer of Hebrews jumps to an application, not meant to be taken literally, but saying that Melchizedek then is like a type of Christ. Because therefore, Melchizedek symbolically has no beginning or end to his life. We don't, he just appears, doesn't, doesn't mention any parents, And he just disappears off the scene of the event. So there's no recording of his death. And so I'm just going to use that as an analogy. That he has no beginning or end to his life. And so therefore if he has no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever. Notice how also Melchizedek was a priest and a king. He was both. Hebrews wants to to make sure that that gets pointed out as well. Now Hebrews takes all these details of the detective story. And now wants to show you how the story ends. Again, speaking of Plato, in reality, Melchizedek is a shadow, like the shadows on the wall in Plato's analogy of the person that's in the cave. Anybody remember from philosophy in high school? I think the guy sitting in the cave, and there's a fire burning um, behind him, and there's people that are walking Uh, in front of the fire but he can't see them, so all he can see is the shadows on the wall. And and, and he thinks those shadows on the wall are full reality because that's objectively what he can see. Until someone comes and cuts him loose from his chair and he stands up and he turns around and he realizes that the reality are the people walking back and forth behind him. And he was merely seeing the shadows. Yes, they were real shadows. But they weren't the full reality. The reality was the people. Hebrews is trying to say the same thing. Hebrews is saying, as we read the Old Testament, when we look at Melchizedek, when we look at Jerusalem, when we look at these things, we are looking at the wall with the shadows on them. But now that Christ has come, we've been cut free so that we can turn around and we can see, oh, these are all simply reflections of the truth. It's why Paul was so emphatic about not going back to Judaism. It's why Paul was so emphatic of, why would you go back to the sacrificial system? Why would you go back to the temple? Why would you go back to Sabbath laws? Why would you go back to dietary things, circumcision? You're going back to the shadow. It's like being cut free, seeing the reality of Christ and saying, great, and then saying, put me back in the chair. I want to just keep studying the shadows. And Paul says that's ludicrous. Now that you know the reality, you want to be in relationship with the reality. And now you understand what the shadows were a shadow of. And so what he does is now say, let me tell you where the, what the shadows were a shadow of. So the writer of Hebrews says this, well, all this Melchizedek stuff, this is the fulfillment of it. Jesus Is the king of everything. Salem or Jerusalem were also mere shadows of the new heavens and the new earth. Sometimes referred to in the New Testament as the new Jerusalem. Jesus is a priest forever of the most high God. Making Jesus not only our king. But Jesus is the one who prays and intercedes for us making him greater than us, which is exactly what we see in the picture of Melchizedek and Abraham, that Jesus blessed Abraham and his children of faith, making him their Lord. Now make sure that you get this, because this is where you and I are actually in this story. Because you see, Abraham himself is a picture and a shadow of the children of faith. Ephesians makes a very strong point of this. Romans makes a very strong point of this. That Abraham's children are not the biological seed of Abraham, but Abraham's children are the children of faith. Therefore, when Abraham bowed and worshipped, or not worshipped, but bowed and paid homage to Melchizedek in shadow form, what's going on there is that you and I are in Abraham, Abraham's our shadow in a sense. You and I in Abraham paying homage to Melchizedek, you and I are paying homage to Christ. Abraham standing for us, Melchizedek standing for Christ. We are in Abraham. Abraham or slash Israel extends to everyone whose faith is in the Messiah regardless of ethnicity. It's one of the, what Paul calls the scandal of the gospel for so many of the Jewish people in his day, that that the ethnicity that matters is faith. That now because of Christ, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer uh, two categories of God's people. There's one people. There always has really only been one people. It's always been the people of faith. So Jesus blessed Abraham and his children of faith by making him their Lord. And then Abraham and his children of faith are those who surrender their lives to Christ. And this is seen in the ancient practice of tithing. So what Abraham did is he gave a tithe to Melchizedek, which also shows that this tithing thing goes back before the law of Moses. In fact, tithing was a very common practice in Old Testament times in other cultures. Uh, It didn't originate with the Bible. A tithing was to give the war plunder to the king that you were fighting for or honoring. And a tithe was always the, the, the literal understanding of it was the top of the heap or the best that you have. So when you come and you um, win a battle and you come to your king, you give your king the 10% of the best that you won. That's why God in books like Malachi gets so upset at his people when they tithe God their their worst 10%. He's like, you bring before me your lame lambs and your wounded animals. and your, He's like, this is a this isn't just mining, This is a cultural thing. If you give your own kings 10% of your best, why do you give me, God over all, 10% of your worst? It, it, it says something about what you think about me. And so we see in Abraham this, this giving of the best. Consider Then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, gave him a tenth of what was taken in battle. And from this, Hebrews connects the dots and says, The law of Moses requires that the priests, who are the descendants of Levi, must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel, who are the descendants of Abraham. Although Levi wasn't even born yet. The seed from which he came was already in Abraham's loins when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. And that extends even on to us. That in the seed of Abraham, Abraham in shadow form represents all of these ongoing people of God. So it applies all the way to us today. We show our homage to Christ when we give him the best of what we have with our time and talents and treasures as it's sometimes stated. In other words, as the book of Romans says, Abraham is the father of all who believe. He's the father of many nations, which is exactly what his promise in the beginning of Genesis was. It fulfills that promise. All people of faith were already in the seed of Abraham. And in Abraham we bow to the one Melchizedek was a shadow for. That is, we bow to Christ. And we give Christ what a tithe is a shadow for, and that is we give Christ the top of the heap. We give Christ the very best that we have. The clues in Melchizedek's story also point to the fact that Jesus, the true priest-king, is the one who rules with justice. They loved using the etymology of names and what they meant to uh, uh, come up with points as well. And so he goes on and does that also with the city. Jesus, the true priest king, is the one who brings peace. Jesus, as the eternal word, has no ancestry. Jesus, the true priest king, is without beginning or end. Now when all these things are being referred to about Jesus, it's the reality. So now they mean what they mean. We're not saying that this is merely symbolic. For Melchizedek it was. But with Jesus, he really does not have a beginning or end. He really does not have ancestry in the eternal sense. And therefore, Jesus remains our priest king forever. So what does all this mean? Well, let's read on. And there's a lot here. And I'm only going to be able to touch on a couple of things because it is profound. It's profound what all of this means when you put it together. And every line in Hebrews is rich with material. Look at how Hebrews goes on in verse 11 to put all this together. So, if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have been achieved, and it could have achieved the perfection that God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with the priest in the order of Melchizedek? Instead of the order of Levi and Aaron. He's saying if the shadow would have worked. Why did God need to. Make sure that it got fulfilled in its reality. And if the priesthood is changed. The law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest we are talking about belongs to a different tribe. Whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is this, our Lord came from the tribe of Judah, and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. This change has been made very clear since a different priest, who is like Melchizedek, has appeared. See, Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi, just like um, Melchizedek didn't come from the priestly tribe. Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And now he picks up on that psalmist quote. The psalmist pointed out this already. Somehow the psalmist already had some clue to this. When he said, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. I mean, shadows are weak and useless. And so now they they can have a a certain use, but now that the reality has come, we recognize that we no longer need the shadows. And therefore, the law never made anything perfect. It never worked. This idea that the Old Testament people were saved through the sacrificial system is not true. It never worked. The law, sacrifices of lambs doesn't take away sins. Hebrews goes on to say that. But we now have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Abraham's, or sorry, Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. You see, there were many priests under the old system. For death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever... Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Jesus, he is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy. He is blameless. He is unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place in heaven Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first, and then for the sins of their people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. Now, I realize that for many of us here t- today, we might be feeling like, oh, this is a lot of stuff. But I want to encourage you that this is Right before this whole section in Hebrews is where the writer of Hebrews says, there is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain. Especially since, well, okay, I guess this doesn't sound like a compliment. So anyway, He says, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babes who need milk, who can't eat solid food. And someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know. So the context of this, right before all this, the writer of Hebrews is saying, I want to go deep now. Now I know this is going to be a stretch for a lot of you, and I know some of you are going to come up to me after the sermon and say, can't you just stay with the simple stuff? This gets kind of heavy, but the writer of Hebrews prefaces all this and says, you know what, though? If we do that, if we keep drinking the milk all the time, if we keep with the simple stuff, if we keep with the pablum, you're not going to become very mature Christians. And so he's pushing them and saying, yes, this is difficult material, but we must start chewing the food That is really the nourishing stuff. And that's what he's saying here. Let's get into this nourishing stuff. Let's get into the stuff that goes deep. And so what does all this mean? He starts to put all this stuff together about what Melchizedek is a shadow for and what Christ really then represents and says, all of this means that our salvation was not brought about by keeping the sacrificial law. Our salvation was not brought about by keeping the sacrificial law. And this applies beyond the Old Testament. <coughs> the, uh, salvation is not brought about through legalism, moralism, or Old Testament law. Old Testament law was merely a shadow pointing to the reality. Moralism and legalism is just plain stupidity. These things don't save you. Hebrews 10 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why then was it necessary? It was necessary as an illustration to the true reality. Very much like what is going to happen later in the service today, we take of communion, like when we get baptized, these are shadows of the true reality. Of Christ the shadows are important but they're a shadow of the true reality and it's the true reality that the shadows point to we don't worship the bread and wine we worship the one that it points to and that's what Christ came to do and in accomplishing it he became the high priest In a greater order than any of the high priests in Aaron's order. He came from an eternal order connected with God. Christ's sacrifice on the cross then was once and for all. It was real. It happened in a way that the the priests couldn't have done it. Because they were still sinners themselves. And it fulfilled and accomplished what the illustration only pointed to. Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek by the power of life that cannot be destroyed. So the forgiveness of sins was not brought to us by human effort, it was not brought to us by a sacrificial system, it was not brought to us through the Old Testament methods and systems, it was brought to us by Jesus Christ himself. And we can only find forgiveness in sins in Jesus Christ himself because he's the only eternal one. He's the only one who has no beginning, no end. He's the only one that fulfills creation's mandate. The forgiveness of sin was not brought about through a human priestly line. In fact, it wasn't even brought about through the line of Israel. Technically, and that's a little bit where he goes with this Melchizedek too. Melchizedek stands outside of Israel. So on the one hand, Jesus came, in a human sense, from the line of Israel, but in a Melchizedek sense, in an eternal shadow sense, what it's saying is that ultimate salvation didn't even come through Israel. Because Jesus transcends Israel; he was there before Israel was even, before Abraham was even born. Salvation comes ultimately through Christ. Through Israel, God revealed his salvation plan to the world because Christ came in that line. But his salvation, his very personhood, stands outside of any line. It's eternal. His priesthood and his kingship is unknown. God has not saved us through our lineage or any other lineage. He hasn't saved us through a religious tradition. God saved us by one way and one way only. And that is the death and resurrection and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, it should cause us to humble ourselves to recognize that we did not save ourselves. We did not contribute in any way, but God saved us wholly and completely. It's completely a work done on his side. He is the true king. He is the true priest. He is the true justice. He is the true um, peace. He is the true salvation. Forgiveness, salvation, life cannot be found in any other way ...other than through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is not something you can achieve. Forgiveness is not something you can be born into. Forgiveness is not something somebody else can grant you. It is only something Jesus can do for you. And he has done it for you. Forgiveness, salvation, and life... ...are found in the eternal one alone. Jesus Christ... And the full implications of this are so profound that the biblical writers, even God himself, has to stoop to human pictures and illustrations to give us a little bit of a grasp of it. John Calvin used to say that God stutters in order to communicate to humans. And what he meant by that is that God cannot communicate to us in the fullness of reality, it would be too much for us. Even this is too much for a lot of us. And this is God giving pictures and illustrations and analogies and, and all of that for us to try to piece it together. It's so beyond us. And so, on the one hand, the murder mystery has been solved. We know who done it. It's Christ. On the cross, through the resurrection... We know we can find true life, we can find forgiveness, we can find meaning, we can find purpose, we can find freedom in Jesus Christ. But we also recognize that once we do, it's like going back and reading the Wookiee Collins story over again, and over again, and over again. Because yes, now I know the ending of the story, but somehow when I go back and reread these stories, They become richer and richer every time because I start to see how the pieces start to fit together towards the end, which I didn't see before because I didn't know the end. And now that I know the end, I start to see how the pieces fit together. And now that I know how the pieces fit together, I start to see how even more pieces fit together. And the more and more I immerse myself in the story, the more I see how wonderfully compact this puzzle all holds together. You'll spend a lifetime, eternity, simply being amazed, ending in the kind of doxology that Paul ended. Who can fathom the mystery and the wonder of this God? Well, there's one other minor detail In the Melchizedek story that the writer of Hebrews doesn't mention. But I think the way that he works with the story, it it certainly can be applied uh, just as much. And it fits with where we're going to move to the next part of the service. In understanding Melchizedek as an allegory or as a type of Christ, the way Hebrew does. We can then see that there's a possible another shadow in the story. We read in verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of the Most High God brought Abram some bread and wine. Is that just a throwaway line? Remember, Melchizedek represents Christ. Salem represents the new creation. And this Christ, priest of the Most High God, brought Abram, who represents who? Us, the people of faith. And so if we put in the realities for the shadow, Christ, the king of the new creation, and the priest of the Most High God, brought his people some bread and wine Which also, I said, is a shadow of his very body. So when we decode it, Christ, the king of the new creation, priest of the most high God, brought his people, his very body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. Because today we no longer look at the shadows, but today we understand the shadows for the reality. Because Matthew writes, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins of many. Jesus is the true bread and true wine. The true eternal priest king. The one who has extended us the forgiveness of our sins. I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward at this time. And we're gonna move into a time of communion. We have the five different stations. The middle, we have the kneeling benches for those that would like to kneel and receive communion. For those that cannot come forward, I will be moving around and serving you in your seats. And this is for all people, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your denomination, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your gender, regardless of your economic status, regardless of any other category you want to put in front of you, all that matters is this is for those who've said yes to Jesus. If you've said, yes, Jesus, you are my king, you are my priest, You are the one that I recognize as the forgiver of my sins, and I've surrendered my life to you. We welcome you to come and partake in remembering and celebrating what Christ has done for you. Amen. Amen.